This is an ABC podcast. Hello and get the one talking. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Egi Dubong. Korabwa. Thank you for choosing to be with us for your Thursday morning. On today's show, another vote of no confidence within Vanuatu's parliament, changes to the provisions of foreign aid to the Pacific, and World Indigenous Day is set to honour the lives of the Banaban people. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website or you need to do in your search engine is type ABC Pacific Beat and then feel free to share these stories across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Thubal and this is Pacific Beat. It will be a pivotal moment in Vanuatu's political landscape, with the country's parliament set to vote on a motion of no confidence against the Prime Minister, Ishmael Kalsakal, later today. Just a week ago, opposition leader Bob Lofman lodged the motion, supported by the signatures of 29 MPs, a majority in the 52-seat parliament. However, the Vanuatu Daily Post has reported that three of those members have now withdrawn their support. And no doubt, there will be a further negotiations before Parliament is due to sit. Mr Lofman spoke with journalist Priyanka Srinivasan about the motion. I command a majority now and that I will be going to Parliament tomorrow to, to remove the Prime Minister and elect a new Prime Minister. And I, I, ask, I also ask the, the Prime Minister to resign, to resign because he doesn't command the majority now on his side. It's a matter of the members of parliament. They they decide if they are not uh, happy with what the government is doing, they will raise their voices. And, And in this case, they have raised their voice. As leader of the opposition, do you hope you'll be the one elected to become the new prime minister? That will be the that will be the matter that will be the matter for the members in the opposition to to decide. As a leader of the opposition, cannot automatically become the prime minister. It's, it's a matter for the members. Some some people might say that you know there's been so many votes of no confidence. You know, you yourself um, faced it during your your term as prime minister. Um, that that this makes it so difficult for governments to be able to actually make policy, um, actually move the country forward. Uh, do you think there should be more unity in in parliament rather than you know these sort of MPs moving, jumping from one side to the other? That is exactly what we would like to see. You would like to see it, but then, How but then can... you've got MPs yourself who've come from the government side to you, to your side. Uh, shouldn't you be telling them to to stand in unity with the government and let the opposition do do your work and let the government? How would how would how would how would, how would they support the government that they they no, they no longer believe in? Part of the criticism towards Kalsakau's prime ministership was around foreign engagement, um, particularly the uh, security deal signed between Mr. Kalsakau and and uh, Australia. Um, you had criticised that. Is that still a concern for you? It is still a concern to me, as, as an individual, and as uh, in my party, now that we will be having the coalition government, 
it will be a matter for the coalition government to to decide to decide whether we should proceed with it or we make some amendments on the current format because the last time I spoke out was to do with the sovereignty of mm. this country. And I think that is the most important, most important aspect of the security deal that must be protected. Are you worried that the sovereignty uh, isn't protected under the new deal? I mean, if you were prime minister, would you change it or even maybe stop stop it? We, we will we will have to we will have to revisit that. We will have to revisit that. Secondly, we are members of the non-aligned movement that we should also look to other uh, uh, partners, bearing in mind our uh, status as a non-aligned. Uh, I know, Mr. Lofman, when you talk about other partners, um, you know, many people would think about China. I know during your prime ministership, you signed a number of gr- agreements with China when its foreign minister, um, Wang Yi, came, came to the country. Um, do you do you see the security deal with Australia maybe you know coming in the way of of your your relationship with China? Would you want to see more security deals with China if you were? No, it's 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 not it's not only China. It's not only China. We could have other members like uh, France, Japan, and any other being a member of the non-aligned. Some, you know, there's been a lot of um, fear, I guess, with some countries around China and its increased influence in in the Pacific. Is that your concern as well? Put it this way: the main uh, threat to the country is climate change. Climate change is the uh, the number one threat to livelihood in Vanuatu. Vanuatu's opposition leader Bob Lofman speaking there to freelance journalist Priyanka Srivanasan. Staying on that story, motions of no confidence are a common feature of Vanuatu politics, accepted by MPs as a legitimate tactic to unseat the government. But what do the Ni Vanuatu people think? Well, joining us to discuss the political ongoings is Jenny Ligo from the group Vanuatu Women Against Crime and Corruption. With that, I say welcome to the show, Jenny. Uh, good morning, and thank you for including me on this uh, program. Um, I would say that Vanuatu, from past experience or history, had uh, 11 solid years reign of a solid government by late Father Walter Lingi. After that, it has been always a pollution since till now. It is too much of a political crisis. The population of Vanuatu voters find it very difficult to afford a solid government. But Vanuatu has too many political parties or groupings and will be hard unless the government in power will seriously consider the political reform and the in the in the greaty bill. Vanuatu may be at its time to consider the Westminster system after forty three years now using it. If Vanuatu cannot have a political reform this country is going to drain itself in 
into lots of corruption for political gain and also the political system will continue to fail the population at large in Vanuatu. I would like to see a change in Vanuatu Parliament, a system like the party system where France and New Caledonia are using to have the party number half men and half women in Parliament to help reduce men dominating the national parliament and never have respect and trust for anyone. Yeah, it also boils down to the voters who believe are voting the right people, but they are always voting the same mentality. This political crisis of having a motion of no confidence on a prime minister in an arranged collusion government is seen very childish and improper from political leaders. It's not the first time this year alone Within eight months now, PM is facing two motions of no confidence, which is indeed a very bad practice for the parliament and Vanuatu. It is no longer a government of stability, but a government of instability. I have questioned the MOU arrangements with the political parties or groupings of the coalition government signed to agree to form a coalition government which all arrangements never respected and trusted. With all small parties or one-man band in a political arrangement, to many people is a risky business and it's very difficult to get them in a fence or block because this is always giving enough room to move or jump over the fence. In my opinion, with a coalition government arrangement, it's best to have bigger groupings like UNP, Moderate Party, Fanuaku Party, with bigger numbers to grow, to group together rather than taking one group only with one MB and it's not stable. Jenny, can I ask, among the reasons the opposition gave for the motion is that the Prime Minister's foreign engagement uh, claimed that the security deal with Australia compromises Vanuatu's independence uh, and the impartiality. Do you think that that is actually an issue that matters to the people? I think right now I must say that the, the Vanuatu people don't know anything about this. This is the saddest thing because every time they come up with a um with with with, uh, with a reason to have a political um uh, motion of no confidence but um but those reasons the people don't know for example uh, uh if they are using uh, foreign policies um then um people don't know that we don't know uh, that they are using that but for political um, uh, instability, I think it's best to make sure that um, uh, the arrangement uh, between developing partners, for example, if uh, they, uh, if the other party is using, um, I mean, the other uh, bloc is using foreign policy as the reasons why, then. Uh, 
that is also a question to many people because nobody knows what what uh, in the uh, uh, foreign policies, what the arrangement in there that they are not happy about. If it is about social security, Vanuatu, honestly, we need to um, uh, make things clear so that people understand that, uh, yes, we, we really need to uh, step up to those uh, issues that um, our our uh, development partners are, are doing. But if they are doing the right thing, we don't see any reason why political parties should use those as um, their excuses to um, uh, pull down or put down a government. Yeah, politicians seem to accept this as you know a very normal part of politics. What do you think? Do you think it distracts them from more important things? Um, for me, I don't think so. I think the what 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 is um, uh, feeling on the ground now. What we are seeing is that the, the their political arrangement, the coalition government, is not helping them. I mean, the politicians. Like there are fifty-two members of uh, politicians, and. Um, it's not helping them. So that's why they have to come up with other things to make sure that they break down the government. But I think it's within the MOU that they signed, like all the political parties, that what is wrong? They need to look at themselves what is wrong with their arrangement in a coalition government. At the end of the day, what needs to be done to bring more stability to Vanuatu politics, Jenny? Um, I think women of uh, Vanuatu, we we had enough of uh, all this monkey business, having all this uh, uh, up and down with uh, Vanuatu coalition government, and uh, because it's not doing anything good, but it's corrupting the system. So. We we will consider a change. We want to see a uh, a change of the system in Vanuatu Parliament. I want to thank you for your time this morning, Jenny. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No worries. That is Jenny Ligo from Vanuatu Women Against Crime and Corruption. There are calls for the PNG government to cancel the mining leases connected to a controversial failed attempt to add starting up the world's first deep-sea mining operation. The mining minister has revealed the exploration and mining leases held by Nautilus Minerals, which faced bankruptcy, remained active and have been transferred to another company. And that company, Deep Sea Mining Finance, intends to revive the Solwara One project and has applied for another mining lease. The news has alarmed anti-seabed mining activists and some government MPs who had thought the project was abandoned. Liam Fox reports. Alan Murat, the member for Abal, likens hearing the news that Nautilus Minerals' Solwara One project has been revived to being told a spooky tale of supernatural resurrection. Like uh, an animal going off into the jungle uh, uh, in one form and coming back in a different form but it's still the same beast. My, my initial reaction was, 
how how could this how could this be? Because we thought we'd got rid of it, and we were all happy. The new beast is Deep Sea Mining Finance Limited. Last week, the mining minister, Sir Anno Parla, told Parliament Deep Sea Mining Finance had purchased what was left of Nautilus, the original proponents of the Solwara project, after it went bankrupt and was placed into liquidation in Canada in 2019. It now owns the two exploration leases and one mining lease that allowed Nautilus to mine hydrothermal vents on the floor of the Bismarck Sea for copper and gold. Sir Anno also said Deep Sea Mining Finance has applied for a second mining lease and it planned to start mining trials later this year with full commercial production to begin next year. Dr Maratz, who sits on the government benches, is wondering why the ghost of Nautilus appears to be getting the red carpet treatment. In my view, we are not obligated to welcome them back. Papua New Guinea should stand at the ground and say no, no, no to any deep deep mining. The Solwara 1 project was deeply controversial. If it had gotten off the ground, or rather to the bottom of the sea, it would have been the world's first operational deep sea mining project. But its experimental nature and fears of potential environmental impacts generated a lot of local opposition. Among those leading the fight against it was Jonathan Mesulam from the Alliance of Solwara Warriors. We are expecting this uh, the return because uh, after the Natalus Minerals has uh, been declared bankrupt, this license is still active. And during our campaign, we were calling for the cancellation of those uh, licenses, the exploration license and mining license. Mr Mesulam has just returned from an important meeting of the International Seabed Authority in Jamaica, the body set up to regulate seabed mining. At the meeting, the ISA failed to finalise a regulatory framework for seabed mining and ruled out granting permission for any mining operations to begin. Mr Mesulam says there were no PNG government representatives at the meeting. PNG government has failed its responsibility as a, a part of the global community, you know, in discussing the issue on seabed mining. Because at the ESA, there still haven't been any agreed, you know, regulatory framework for seabed mining. He believes that it does not matter who holds the leases for the Seoul Wara One project, the people of PNG will not let it proceed. The government and the company should be aware that uh, we have been doing the campaign in a diplomatic approach, meaning we, we, brought, we signed petition, we follow procedures, but if they are pushing for this project, then who knows what's next? Violence is the only last resort that we will take on. We don't want to go to that stage, so we beg the government to just listen, cancel the license, and it's over. Jonathan Misulama from the Alliance of Sawara Warriors, ending Liam Fox's report there. Pacific Beat has contacted the Mining Minister, Sir Anopala, the Mineral Resources Authority and Deep Sea Mining Finance Limited for comment. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your life or home isn't. Learn what to do before, during and after disaster in a program aimed at helping you keep safe. Pacific Prepared is all things disaster preparedness for the Pacific, with a team of reporters on the ground having conversations and bringing you the stories that could help you, your family and community prepare for natural disasters. Pacific Prepared, Fridays from 9.30am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
For the first time in a decade, Australia has changed its policy on how it provides aid, including to the Pacific. Those changes were announced this week by Australia's Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, and the Minister for International Development, Pat Conroy. As Australians, regardless of which political party we hail from, it is central to who we are. It is central to the UN Charter. It is central to our worldview that each country must be able to determine its own fate and make choices for itself. It's why we don't engage in unsustainable lending that diminishes sovereignty. It's why our relationships are based on partnership and respect. It's why we seek to contribute to a region where all of us, all our peoples, can cooperate and thrive. That's Australia's Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, speaking there. But what exactly do these changes mean for the Pacific, where Australia is the biggest aid donor to the region? So joining us now is Roland Vraja, the Director of the Indo-Pacific Development Centre at the Lowy Institute. With that, I say good morning, Roland. Uh, Good morning. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Roland. I would like to know why was it necessary for Australia to change its development assistance policy? Well, I think, as you say, you know, Australia has been operating in its uh, development program now for around a decade, uh, you know, without a long term uh, policy and strategy for what it's trying to do and achieve and where it's headed with its uh, development program. Now, a policy like this, of course, is, you know, it's just a policy. Most you know, of what matters ultimately comes down to implementation and decisions taken you know, at a lower level, particularly uh, in terms of at the country level with the countries Australia's uh, development program is, you know, looking to work with. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, you need to have that kind of high level policy and strategy to say, you know, what you're trying to achieve, where you're headed, how you're going to judge uh, your performance and, you know, some some general guidance around the kind of things uh, that you're going to focus on and hold yourself accountable uh, over. And, and that's, you know, essentially uh, why a policy uh, was needed. Was there anything that stood out to you, though, in terms of those changes? You know, look, I think, you know, the headline sort of message, I think, from this policy is that, you know, of course, you know, the the world has changed very rapidly, um, you know, since the last uh, major policy uh, was announced. Um, And, uh, you know, I think the, the key value add that's coming from this policy is to really reaffirm that, you know, for Australia, despite all, you know, the talk about, you know, geopolitics and China's presence in the region, that for Australia in terms of its development program, you know, the main thing is and needs to be about having a high quality and effective development program, not one, you know, geared towards um, having a very transactional approach looking to boost Australia's influence directly in order to respond to these sort of geostrategic um, issues, but rather that, you know, to the extent we want the development program is about supporting Australia's own uh, national interest, that this is going to come by having a, you know, very effective development program that is genuinely uh, responsive to the needs and priorities of the countries we're working with. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing. Yeah, like you say, it is just a policy, but until it's implemented. So then what's the impact you think this will have on how uh, Australia gives out aid to the Pacific? Yeah, well, I mean, there's not a lot of um, specific decisions in the policy because that's not what the policy is for. And, you know, we already knew from the last uh, Australian federal budget that there wasn't going to be, a, you know, a heap of, of new money uh, coming in under this new government, at least uh, for now. In fact, it's kind of, you know, they basically locked in, you know, a fairly flat trajectory uh, for the aid program after you account for uh, inflation. So I think what this, you know, uh, new policy uh, offers to countries uh, in the region 
is really this idea that the program is going to be about having an effective program and that it's look, looking to really genuinely be you know, responsive to the priorities of, of the countries Australia is looking to work with. And that really means that, you know, those partner countries should really see themselves having having the opportunity to be, to be much more in the driver's seat to articulate, you know, what their needs and priorities are and, and not just what the priorities are, but how they would like to see their own development uh, supported in terms of what kinds of programs working on what, but in also in, in what kind uh, of ways. I think that's where the main impact will be, that opportunity to, um, you know, uh, be able to put forth what the region really wants and needs and have that responded to. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons that's given is that this is a response to that complex geostrategic climate. And many would say, how will these changes counter China's influence? Yeah, and I think that's the key thing that comes through from this policy. I mean, there's a few mentions uh, throughout the document about the importance of having the effective development program. And certainly, um, Minister Conroy in particular has been very um, clear on, on saying that Australia's development program is not going to be transactional in nature. And I think the general thrust coming through from the document is that, you know, yes, you know, Australia does care about its influence in the geopolitics around these things uh, in the region, but that the role of the development program is to really be an effective program that promotes development, that sustainable development in the region is going to be good for Australia in its own right. And by doing a good job, you know, that will win Australia the kind of influence and leadership position that it wants. But it won't directly uh, give you geostrategic um, influence over, you know, very specific things. That's a different matter and it's probably not something um, that many people think the aid program is particularly good at delivering you uh, anyway. Do you think that these changes will be received well, uh, you know, in the Pacific by countries? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's up to the Pacific to, to articulate how um, they see things. But, you know, the emphasis on having genuine and respectful partnerships, I think that's important. It's a change in style that's been evident with the current government since it came uh, to power. But putting it down on paper, you know, that that is the marching orders that the government has uh, for its development program, you know, from the bureaucracy through to the people implementing it, that the emphasis is on having those kinds of genuine partnerships um, there's a strong focus on, you know, locally um, uh, led development uh, and supporting that um, through the pro- through the uh, development program. I think that's quite important. You know, there's not, you know, nothing groundbreaking there, but I think emphasising the right things. So I think, you know, hopefully it will be received well. But ultimately, it's going to come down to, you know, decisions that are going to taken essentially at the country level, at the program and project level, how that translates. And that's a question of implementation. That's still something that yeah. has to we have to wait to see. Roland, can you just confirm, I know while the policy has actually changed, but has the budget for aid to the region changed? I know you sort of see there was maybe just a flat trajectory. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, certainly the new, when the new government came in, they've, you know, announced more money uh, for the Pacific in particular over the, over the forward uh, years. Um, but in general, I mean, there's not a huge amount of change in, in terms of the budget going overall for the aid program for Australia or to uh, the Pacific after you account uh, for, you know, inflation, which we've had a lot of uh, recently. And this policy doesn't really change that, right? It's not a policy that's about the, the budget and the dollars. You know, really, it's about how Australia is looking. And I think this is another key thing with the policy, how Australia is looking to have an effective aid program, but within, you know, a fixed a fixed envelope for now.
Mm. You, you've already alluded a little bit to the question I was about to ask. I mean, how does Australia rank in terms of generosity, you know, in terms of its aid budget and, and how does it even compare to other developed nations? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, that is the sort of the glaring sort of weakness in Australia's um, development uh, policy settings, which, you know, is not something that this new policy um, specifically uh, addresses. It specifically doesn't address it, which is that, you know, Australia's had these deep budget cuts over the last uh, decade or so in terms of the aid program. And that's left us, you know, one of the, the fourth <clears throat> least um, generous country uh, in the OECD in terms of, um, you know, the share of our national income that we devote to our development assistance, um, when you consider that we're also on a per capita basis, um, you know, Australia is uh, one of the richest countries in the world, then some of the analysis that we've done at the Institute, for example, shows that, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, Australia is, is tied with uh, the United States in terms of having the biggest gap between its, uh, basically, its prosperity and its uh, generosity. You know, so that's a very unfortunate thing. Um, that hopefully will be corrected, um, you know, over the medium term. But certainly from this government, it seems like that's not something that's going to change um, any time uh, soon. Is there any other key concerns that we should be aware of from this policy? Look, I think overall it's a good policy by shifting the focus away a bit from the the raw geopolitics of what's going on in the region and towards, you know, the the centrality of having an effective uh, development program and how that in itself is going to be in Australia's interest and that's the thing uh, to focus on. So that's a good thing. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's not just about the the budget. I mean, this this policy would probably be best described as one of fairly uh, constrained ambition. There's, There's no... Um, new money, of course. Um, there are no dramatic structural changes being proposed to the way uh, what the aid program does or uh, how it is uh, managed. Um, there's uh, you know, a development finance review that came out with the policy focused on new financing instruments. But again, that basically says you know, it's going to, Australia is going to continue doing more or less what it's doing, but it's going to try and focus more on uh, the effectiveness of, of what it's doing. So, you know, there are, you know, there are positives, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a policy with a, a fair bit of, of constraints on the amount of ambition it has. Absolutely. Roland, look, we really appreciate your insight uh, and time this morning. Thank you very much. No worries. That is Roland Raja, the Director of the Indo-Pacific Development Centre uh, at the Lowy Institute. There are concerns about a shortage of medical supplies at the Solomon Islands National Referral Hospital. Reports from local media indicate that due to low medical supplies, such as gauze dressings and bandages, that only critical surgeries are going ahead. Tony Checker is a diabetic patient who underwent a leg amputation, has been in the hospital for over a month now. Speaking with ABC reporter Chris Narita Almanuliong, he said doctors and nurses are washing and reusing bandages to treat wounds. Past uh, two weeks, we have been reusing uh, bandages, especially like uh, our dressing kits, dressing kits. I think the nurses, I mean, they speak here and there. I mean, in the, I mean, within the, yeah. And they come and temporarily, yeah. Even the bandages too, incomplete. And then uh, eventually we have to, the advisors have to wash the bandages up. And me, I think my son, yeah, have washed up 
Dat ging wat vol of vijf bodytjes. En uh, two times I've used the same bodies that uh, I've used already. And is this adding extra uh, pressure on your finances? Actually, yes, yes, but uh, yes, not yeah, yeah, but actually, yeah, some extra money where it should be for smaller things eh, around here. But anyway, it goes for the purpose of dressing, and it's okay. Yeah. And what, what, what have the doctors and nurses told you about the situation here at the hospital? No, they admitted, they actually admitted that they are running short of, uh, what's that, uh, what, materials, eh? Uh, yeah, dressing kits and all this. Yeah, and then that's why they are rationing, you know, like some of us who are recovering uh, faster, we have to skip a day. Like me today, I, I skip today. So I'll do my dressing tomorrow. And that was a Solomon Islands patient, Tony Chika, speaking with ABC reporter Chris Narita Almanuliong. Pacific Beat has sought comments from health authorities in Solomon Islands. Members of the Rambi Island community have gathered to celebrate Rambi, the first World Indigenous Day Summit. The island in Fiji is home to the Banaban people, who were forced to relocate from their homeland of Kiribati to Fiji. The gathering marks the role of the community in tackling climate crises and also celebrating the resilience of the Banaban people after being displaced for over 77 years. Joining us this morning from the island of Rambi is Ray Bandesi, founder of the Rambi Island community. Huh? But with that, I say Māori, and welcome to the show. Māori, and thank you for having us. Absolutely. Are, can you let us know, look, 77 years ago, the Banaban people relocated to Fiji. A little bit of a history, maybe why, and what is the legacy of that relocation? Yeah, thank you very much. So uh, our people were forcefully relocated from uh, Banaban, uh, which used to be known as Ocean Island, uh, Banaba is located in Kiribati, uh, modern-day Kiribati, and we're 2,000 kilometers away from uh, Rambi, where it is home now. Our relocation was as a result of uh, extractive industries and phosphate mining that uh, destroyed our ancestral home and made it inhabitable. So we've been here since uh, December 15, 1945. Our, our ancestors, our elders, were, were shipped away from uh, Banaba. Uh, on a boat called Triona, and 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 we are now in Rambi. I think of you know those who are currently living in Rambi. Like how many are there? And also considering the effects of climate change, do you ever think that your people would want to go back to Kiribati? Yeah. So our current population on the island is about five thousand. Our majority of the landowners are here in Rambi, Fiji. Most of them aspire to go back home. And what are some of the challenges, though, Ray, that this community has had to face or are maybe still facing to this day? Uh, one, very pertinent, uh, one very important one is uh, citizenship. Uh, in uh, accessing, uh, accessing uh, citizenship 
in, in both uh, countries because uh, we are afforded that in both countries, but uh, that is still uh, pretty much very messy uh, today. And so access to return home, the right to return home is still a very big problem for us today. Ray, now that you guys have got you know the first World Indigenous Day Summit happening, what are you hoping to achieve from the summit for your Banaban community? Yes, this uh, World Indigenous Day that's organised for the first time in Rambi, Fiji, for the Banaban community, just a reminder to tell our people that we are still indigenous to a land that we were forcefully relocated out, out of. Um, at these, uh, uh, the, at the last World Indigenous Day that was celebrated yesterday, uh, we launched uh, several uh, several exhibitions, including uh, the uh, Justice for Rambi, the story of Barnabin exhibition, which is a virtual exhibition uh, uh, that was supported by the International Center Advocates Against Discrimination. Uh, we were so proud to have had the opportunity to launch this uh, in front of the Assistant Minister uh, of the Culture, Arts and Heritage to show that our Barnabin uh, are working very hard to, to, to store and to maintain most of the lost histories uh, and what is uh, left now on, online, on this virtual exhibition. So we were, uh, we, we, we were, we were able to launch that yesterday. And uh, among other things, we also launched the Balaban Women's Strategic Plan. And the Balaban Women's Strategic Plan is the first and one of the earliest uh, civil society that was established in Granby by the visionary women of, um, of Rambi, or of Barnabin descendants who were here and worried about their traditional uh, knowledge and skills that were lost as the result of forced relocation. Uh, we were also uh, very happy to be able to launch that with the Honorable Minister of uh, Women, Children and Poverty Alleviation, Linda Tabuya, who was on the island yesterday. Among other things, we were also able to uh, publish other reports, including the Rambi Water Security Report, uh, the dashboard, the new dashboard for a population count, uh, as well as uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hall, uh, which is one site on Rambi uh, that was destroyed by two cyclones in Fiji. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hall is uh, a reminder of the relationship with the with uh, with England and the Crown, who plays a huge role in our forced relocation uh, to Rambi from Kiribati. And so this hall was destroyed, and it's a result of loss and damage, climate, climate, climate change-induced disaster. Uh, we were able to also uh, engage young, uh, young artists uh, that have never be- before been trained uh, to use their art as a way to express themselves, and we were able to paint their the art on the the destroyed uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall. And uh, we were very happy that both ministers uh, were able uh, to have a look at the the site and uh, also think about how uh, it can be, uh, you know, it can be rebuilt uh, to serve the island people of of Barnaby in Rambi. And so it was an uh, exciting day. Uh, It was a day that we featured Barnaby theologies and academics artists, musicians, and just showcasing talents because the real reality for the Barnabans in, uh, in Rambi 
is that after 77 years, you know, we're still, we're still drinking brown water. We have no other ways uh, to, uh, or no projects that have addressed the pressing, uh, you know, social, economic, political uh, issues that we are facing now on this island because of our, our, our you know, the, the fact that we, we, we fall in the crack of two countries at this, at this present time. It really does speak a lot of the resilience of your Banaban people. And I want to take it back a little bit because, uh, you know, being forced and being displaced for over 77 years, there must be a lot of healing that has had to have been happened or have been done with your people. Could you explain a little bit on that? Yes, and for us, our healing, our healing our process started yesterday because no one country that has contributed to our relocation, our forced relocation because of mining and extraction has come back to our community to formally apologize for what has been done. And uh, the the exhibition that was launched yesterday is the same exhibition that we presented in Auckland, New Zealand with ICAD, uh, where, you know, we, we tell our stories in the hope that we, we are not forgotten and uh, our narratives, we own our narratives to say that, you know, there were countries, there were consortium of governments and authorities that were responsible for forced relocation, but neither one one of them has come back to apologize. And so we began this healing process within our communities. After 77 years of living on Granby, we are resilient. And when I look at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, which is very ruined, I see a ruined structure that disrupted us drove us away from our island. But I also see paints, arts and expressions of resilience that the Parliaments are a very resilient people and I'm very proud of that. What then finally, Ray, would be your message, you know, to the outside world, to us who are looking in, how can we join in on raising awareness of the stories of your Banaban people? Yeah, and I think to start off with, uh, in the countries that, you know, Banabans are very uh, that that uh, you know that are very that were visible in the days of uh, mining era. I think we need to start looking at our education systems. We need to be educating our people, especially in Australia, New Zealand, Kiribati, and Fiji, and Japan, who were you know who took uh, who played a huge role in also forcing us to relocate because of uh, World War Two. You know to start incorporating. Uh, the Banaban history in all the education system, this is one way we can educate people about our people so that our story is never forgotten. You're doing beautiful work there, Ray. I really do appreciate your time and uh, much love to the Banaban people. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. That, of course, is Ray Bandesi, founder for the Rambi Island Community Hub. Papua New Guinea's Enger province has been in the headlines of late because of violence and bloodshed. But one village there is making a positive news. It is staging an important cultural event that's had important health and traditional significance. A village in Enger is showcasing its culture of making and preserving traditional salt through a two-day festival. Festival coordinator Tony Solupin says the host village, Pilikambi, is going ahead with the show despite a three-month state of emergency announced in the province. 
public central life it's life is normal there's no trouble fight so i think state of emergency is not really uh, that will uh, not affect our festival and our preparation is well underway police are on standby uh, to provide security for the safety of our traveling public Pilikambi is home to more than 30,000 people and has the highest number of salt ponds. Traditional salt making used to be an important practice in Pilikambi, but the tradition died out when processed salt was introduced. Traditional salt uh, is one of the very important uh, commodities that our ancestors used to uh, to uh, process. So it played a very important role in uh, exchanging with uh, people from other parts of the province and other parts of the country, like uh, people from uh, Western Islands, Eastern Islands. They came all the way to uh, my place in Lakeham just to exchange with uh, traditional salt. A traditional salt, it's a natural salt fund. We have uh, so many in, in my uh, my community, in my uh, LLG, Pilikambi. So we have about 10 to uh, 12 uh, traditional salt funds. The traditional salt making process is a lengthy exercise and involves soaking logs into salt ponds for up to five months. During the days when butter system was widely practiced, Pilikambi became a trading center where people from as far as West Sipik and Western Highlands provinces traveled to exchange bed feathers, tree oil, and garden produce for traditional salt. It was also used as payment for bride price and can be preserved for years if properly stored. They used to uh, submit or put a lock into the salt phones, and dried locks, and they put into the salt phones, and then they waited for, uh, for five to uh, six months. Uh, during that time, uh, you will see that uh, a crust is uh, seen to form around the uh, logs, and then the salt is uh, salt is accumulated around the logs, and they they are left in the phones for five to six months. And when they want to uh, process the salt, they remove the salt salty logs, and then dry them for um, three to four days, and then. At the uh, side of the font, they built uh, had small shelters around, and then the floor is cemented with a uh, clay soil. And then they uh, arranged the logs, the salty logs, in a firmit safe structure. And then they set a blaze underneath, and then all the logs have been bent down into S's. And then uh, after this, the logs are bent down, uh, what remains? is a milky white uh, essence that is a fried salt. The entire salt making process will be demonstrated during the two-day festival. And that's Thekla Gunga with that report. Taking a look back at our main stories, it's a big day in Vanuatu as MPs will debate a motion of no confidence to oust Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakal. This is opposition leader Bob Lofman. I command the majority now and that I will be going to Parliament tomorrow to remove the Prime Minister and elect a new Prime Minister. I also ask the Prime Minister to resign. 
But women's leader Jenny Lingo says not everyone is keen about the current political situation. Women of Vanuatu, uh, we had enough of all this monkey business, having all this up and down with uh, Vanuatu coalition government. Because it's not doing anything good, but it's corrupting the systems. And in Papua New Guinea, concerns have been raised about the possible return of deep sea mining company Nautilus. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Uh, remember, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. I won't be back tomorrow because, of course, Kyle uh, Evans will have you for your sports show uh, edition. But I'll be back again at 6 a.m. next Monday. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website, simply typing in ABC Pacific Beat. Follow us on Facebook, but stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia because next is your news, followed by Jacob Maguire on Nisha Daily. Uh, until next time, I'm Aggie Dubol. I have appreciated your company. Have a, an amazing weekend. This is Pacific Beat.